Welcome to episode two of Our God-Bathed Life. Titled, Is God Really That Good? The Biggest Question Facing Each of Us. I want to take just a moment and recommend that if you haven't already, that you listen to the introductory episode. It'll give you a good idea of what to expect from this and future episodes. As stated in that introductory episode, the practices suggested at the end of the episodes are for anyone. You do not need to be a Christian yet to be here. All are welcome. For the scripture selections for this episode, David sings in Psalm 23. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. Quote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Close quote. Matthew informs us in chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, quote, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Close quote. These words from Jesus and Matthew are difficult. Until we have settled, and I mean actually settled, that God really is that good, these words of Jesus are unlikely to be a reality in our lives. They'll remain just difficult words. Again, quote, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, close quote. But these difficult words can indeed be reality for us. In fact, they can be the path to true freedom. When we know that we have a good shepherd in whose hands we can place our lives and the lives of those in our care, then our lives can look like that described in the 23rd Psalm. We can find rest and peace we can begin to realize that we live in a world of the abundant goodness of God. Our souls are refreshed. Goodness and loving kindness are companions on our journey with God. Again, quote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Close quote. But for that to be the experience in our own lives, we must first trust that God really is that good. Since this is the second episode on the goodness of God, 
let's restate the point of the last one. In that blog, we looked at how God, out of his goodness and love for us, turned an instrument of horror into an instrument of hope, the cross. He used language formed by his enemy, Satan, to speak to us, the language of sacrifice. Satan, through false gods, would ask people to sacrifice their children to him. This was done to hurt God by hurting us. When a parent offered their child in sacrifice, the sacrifice wasn't only the child. The parent would also suffer greatly. Just ask any parent who has lost a child what the greatest possible pain is. Yet the Trinity, including God the Father and God the Son, chose this very kind of thing to plea for our reconciliation with Him. God the Father offering God the Son, God the Son willingly offering Himself. What kind of God chooses to go through the pain and humiliation of the cross because nothing less than capturing our hearts will do? One that really is that good. In this episode, we'll consider the goodness of God in the act of creation. Before the fall, things were as God designed them to be. The act of creation provides clues that allows us to glimpse the goodness of God. Proposal Plan This may seem irrelevant, but it's going somewhere, so hang in. And I thank Larry Crabb, an author I admire who has since passed through the veil of this life, for this idea. I imagine that most of you listening either are or have been married. If you're the one making the proposal, usually the man, then you know the painstaking effort that goes into it. You sit down and consider every shred of what you know about her. You seek outside help by trying to ask her family, friends, co-workers, dog, ex-boyfriends, her third grade teacher, that person she once sat next to on the bus. Well, you get the idea. For any other tidbits that may be helpful in formulating your plan. You sit down and replay in your head any conversations that you two had where she may have implied that she likes something. That Italian restaurant, right. Sunsets on the beach, beautiful. Paintball, she's competitive and adventurous, and that's something you really like about her. The Twilight movies. No way. A man has to draw the line somewhere, and this is a hill you will die on. Oh, right. You're the one planning the date. No Twilight movies. Now that the information gathering phase is complete, you sit down to plan out the perfect environment in which to pop the question. Your rough draft is complete, and now it's time to get the help of your own friends and family to put the finishing touches on the plan. Well, that, and to make sure you aren't coming up with a stupid plan. Time to begin the execution of the plan. Ring. Check. Reservations. Check. Beach open for sunset. Check. Friends available for late morning paintball before your dinner and beach plans. Check. Best friend available to hide near the spot where you're going to ask her to marry you so he can take pictures or video and post to your social media account. Check. You get the idea. You want the perfect environment. This matters. She matters. You want to share the rest of your life with this person. Taking the time and effort to make and execute the plan is just one of the ways that you're telling her, I love you. the creation record. And God saw that it was good is how a few of the days of creation conclude. Some days during the day. Let's briefly take a look at the days of creation. 
Day one, heavens and earth. Earth was formless and void, and waters covered the earth. God himself broke into his creation as if to say, I want to be here. Genesis 1-2 puts it this way, quote, And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, close quote. One more time, with feeling this time. By the way, I'm just kidding with God not being able to express exuberance. Just sometimes when you look at the words on the page, it just kind of looks that way. God created light and saw that it was good. God separated light from darkness, calling light day and darkness night. Day two, God created an expanse between the waters on the earth, think seas, and waters over the earth, think clouds, and called the space in between heaven, the very name given to his home, as if to say, I want to be here. Day three, God created dry land in the midst of the waters, creating land and seas. And he saw that it was good. On the same day, he created vegetation, and he saw that it too was good. Two goods in one day. It is as if he is saying, I want to be here. Day four, God made a great light to govern the day and a lesser light to govern the night. He placed stars in the heavens as opposed to heaven, so that they may help to mark time. And he saw that it was good, as if to say, I want to be here. Day five, God spoke the fish and all the aquatic life into existence. He spoke the birds and all the flying life into existence. He saw that it was good, as if to say, I want to be here. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. Day six, he creates the cattle and the beasts of the earth and every creeping thing, except cats. Cats came after the fall. Cats are of the devil. How do we know no cats? because he saw what he had made, and it was good. If there were cats, it would not be good. Anyway, it was as if to say, I want to be here. From good to very good. But then, still on day six, God breaks with his short tradition. Up until now, God speaks and it happens. The environment is set. Everything is in place except for the person to hide and record it and place it on social media. At this point on day six, God got his hands dirty. He reached down and formed a man from the dust of the ground, held him in his arms, and kissed him, meaning blew the breath of life into his nostrils. Genesis 2-7 puts it this way, quote, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being, close quote. He also gave man a purpose. All of this that I have created is yours. Rule over it. Care for it with me. Also, be fruitful and multiply. He breaks with tradition another way. He says it is very good. It is as if he is saying, I want to be here with you. Day seven, man's first full day. God rested to delight with him. Man's first experience is a day of rest and delight with God. God wanted it no other way. The Risk of Love Love is what drove God to create and make man. Love is what drives a man to propose. 
let's just assume for a moment that ideally these are both the highest form of love, that a man proposes for similar reasons as God created. For a love what C.S. Lewis refers to as gift love, and what the Bible in Greek refers to as agape love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8a, what is often read at weddings, Paul and the Holy Spirit, by the way, the Holy Spirit is the co-author of all the books of the Bible, give a description of this love. Quote, Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails, close quote. This kind of love involves action, things it does and does not do. And action involves choice. For God, the choice is something like whether or not to create the duck-billed platypus. For us, it can be whether or not to love. God cannot not love. Love is what he is. Good is what he is. He also cannot not do good. But for us, this is not so. We can love or not love do good or not do good. God needed to create us that way so that we can freely love him back. For people, no choice equals no love. However, inherent in the creation of a creature that can choose whether or not to love is the possibility that God's love for the creature will go unrequited. The capacity for choice, whether or not to love, is what makes a proposal of marriage a risk. She could say no. She has that freedom. Similarly, God's creation of man was a risk. Man could choose not to love him back. Man could choose not to trust you. Man could rebel, and rebel he did. God's painful choice to give birth to us. When I said that God's choice was what to create, that may not be perfectly accurate. While having that much perfect love and goodness dancing around within and between the persons of the Trinity would have made creation nearly compulsory, it is likely that God actually had a choice whether to create the angels, who had the same capacity to choose, and whether to create mankind, his image bearers, his kids. All analogies are imperfect, and so is this one. But imagine this scenario. God comes to you in a vision and tells you that you and your spouse have a choice to make. If you choose to get pregnant, you will have triplets. These triplets will be your only children. Either have triplets or have no children. You will love these children, and they will fill spaces in your heart you didn't even know you had. You will love your children in ways you didn't even know that you had the capacity for. You will change your entire lives to provide the best possible environment for their flourishing. However, when they turn 14, two of them will rebel. They will make self-destructive choices in their lives. Their addictions and behavior will drain the life from their eyes and bodies until their bodies are too far gone to recover. They will die four excruciating years later. 
You will experience pain of soul over those years and even thereafter, the likes of which you didn't even know was possible. The other child, though, will see what you have done for all three of them, the sacrifices you made, the hard work you did to create a loving environment, the depths of care and concern that you have for all of them. This child will respond in love. This child will thrive and grow up to be a beautiful image bearer of God. This child will marry a wonderful spouse and have two wonderful kids who will also thrive. What do you do? Do you choose to get pregnant with triplets? We know what choice God made. His joy is not unmixed with pain. As I mentioned, man rebelled. But man's rebellion was spurred by another of God's creations that also rebelled, Satan. And when he rebelled, he took one-third of the angels with him. He hates God, but he can't hurt God. So he tries to hurt God by hurting us instead. He tries to turn us against God. Enter the serpent into the Garden of Eden. What is at the heart of the serpent's temptation? God actually had three rules to man, not two. In addition to be fruitful and multiply, and rule over and care for creation with him, God told Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3 verse 1 we find, quote, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Close quote. We're one verse in and already the lie via distortion. God did not say that you may not eat from any tree. God is good and generous. He said, eat from any tree that your heart desires except one. Eve corrects the serpent in Genesis 3, verses 2 and 3. Quote, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Close quote. Unfortunately, she too gets it a little wrong. Touching the fruit was not prohibited. The serpent counters in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, quote, The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, close quote. He lies, but he includes enough truth so as to sound plausible. What happens? Genesis 3, verses 6 through 8 tell us, Quote, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, for they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Close quote. Notice what happened. The heart of what the serpent was telling Eve is God isn't really that good. He is holding out on you. You should take things into your own hands. You'll have a better experience that way and can secure your own outcome. This 
is what we all struggle with today. We feel like God may be holding out on us. We need to take things into our own hands so that we can secure our own outcomes. We also struggle with, is God really that good? But he is. That is what Psalm 23 is telling us. God really is that good. Our reaction when we sin. Notice the reaction of Adam and Eve. They hid. We hide too. When we sin, we hide from those we sinned against, unless we're sociopathic or something. If we gossip about someone at work, we usually try to avoid that person or avoid eye contact. If we cheat someone on a business deal, it is hard to look at the one we cheated. Notice also the response from God in Genesis 3.9, who is perfectly aware of what just happened. Quote, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Close quote. God did not hide. He went out searching for them. Jesus tells the parable about the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep who are safe in order to go and search for the one who is lost. The point of that parable is that this is what God does. He goes out searching for the lost sheep to bring it into the fold and to care for it. He does that with us, provided that we're willing. Anyway, God asked them if they ate the fruit that he told them not to eat. Adam says Eve did it, and Eve says the serpent did it. God then explains to all three of them the consequences of their actions. Notice what happens next in Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the first mention of actual death in the Bible, and not just death as a potential consequence, but in actuality. But that is to care for Adam and Eve's need. Fig leaves make insufficient garments. Our good shepherd responds to us. By the way, God meeting expressed and unexpressed felt needs is all over the Bible. It is as if he is shouting it from the rooftops that we do not miss it. I am good. I love you. Please let me take care of you. Just a few examples. 1. Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. God banishes Cain from the area. Cain complains to God that the punishment is too severe because someone will kill him. God does not say, Well, Cain, a life for a life and all that. No, God appoints a sign for Cain so that no one will kill him. 2. Genesis 4, verse 25. God blesses Eve with another son to replace Abel. 3. Genesis 18 and 19. God tells Abraham that he is going to destroy Sodom because of their great wickedness. Abraham begs God to spare it if a few righteous people are found there. He was trying to ask God to save Lot, but he couldn't get the right words out. Nevertheless, God hears his heart and saves Lot and Lot's two daughters. 4. Genesis 21. We might remember the previous episode that Sarah asks Abraham to kick out Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham's other wife and son. He prays to God on their behalf, and God tells him that he will take care of them, and Ishmael will also be a father of a nation. This comes to pass. 5. Also in Genesis 21, 
Hagar and Ishmael are in the desert after Abraham kicks them out. They're out of water, and Hagar thinks they're going to die. She cries out, and God shows her a well of water. They live. 6. Genesis 24. Abraham's servant prays to God for a wife for Isaac, and the woman who becomes Isaac's wife appears to him even before he's done praying. And there's still the second half of the first book of the Bible to go, plus the other 65 books of the Bible. There are still things to come, like God providing Moses, Aaron, to speak on his behalf, miraculous manna and quail in the wilderness, Gideon's testing God with the fleece and God's answering, David defeating Goliath, God sending fire from heaven to consume Elijah's offering in front of the prophets of Baal, God ordering the cleansing of Isaiah's lips in the vision of the throne room of God, countless healings and exorcisms Jesus performed when asked, Peter's supernatural jailbreak in Acts 12 in response to prayers from the church on Peter's behalf, etc., 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 Unless you close your eyes and stick your fingers in your ears and make noise, it is impossible not to see it once it's been pointed out. The Bible is overflowing with God answering our needs. God the Trinity is truly that good. One final example. To conclude the teaching portion, let's look at one last example back in Genesis 3. Remember from the previous episode when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking God the Father if there was another way to accomplish their plan, one that didn't involve his humiliation, torture, and death. It turns out that wasn't the first time they could have abandoned that painful plan. This observation I also owe to Larry Crabb. I have a number of his books recommended on the recommended books page of OurGodBathedLife.com. For decades, I thought that Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden because God was very displeased with them. Or possibly, it was just a natural consequence of the fall. Turns out it was really neither, and the answer was right in the text all along. Let's take a look at Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. Quote, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. Close quote. They were exiled before they would eat from the tree of life and live forever. Why does it matter if humans live forever? One of the primary reasons that Jesus became human was so that he could suffer and die and resurrect for us. As God, he cannot die. As human, he can. We already discussed in the last episode that there very well may have been other ways that God could offer reconciliation to us but none that would capture our hearts while respecting our agency like this way would. God exiled Adam and Eve to preserve the painful sacrifice he would offer so that we may be reconciled to him. 
What kind of God takes steps to ensure that he can suffer and die on our behalf? One that is truly that good. As we said at the beginning of this episode, the only way that we will deny ourselves and follow him is once we have settled in our hearts that God is indeed that good. Hopefully, this has helped to bring you a little further along that journey. God might say. In this section, we imagine what God might say if he were to speak for himself to us on the subject. Here's what that might sound like. I'm not trying to control you. I designed you to rule over creation with me. It was meant to be a co-reign where we work together on behalf of creation. It was meant to be, and it shall be in the future. I understand the heart behind it when you question whether it was a good idea to give mankind agency. I hear your pleas. God calls my son to stop his self-destructive ways and bring him to you. Or, my wife's unfaithfulness is breaking my soul. It not only hurts me, but we have children. God, make her stop. Or any number of countless prayers where you ask me to remove another person's ability to choose. You don't want that. Think about it. Let's take our our relationship, for example. It is important that you love me. It is good for you. I am good for you. That's why I call it the greatest commandment. But if I created you as a robot programmed to love me, how would you know that you love me and that it isn't just programming? How would you know that you love anyone else? Wouldn't it be awesome if your spouse had no choice but to love you? Every conversation, every time you disappointed, every act of rebellion, only love. Every kind word, every act of love, every hope shared, every dream spoken, only love. Wouldn't that be awesome? That feeling of ick within you? There's a reason for that. Without choice, without agency, whatever it may be, it isn't love. I am the only one capable of that. That is also one major reason why connection with other people is so important. When I created you with the ability to choose to love or not to love, inherent in that is the need to be loved by someone who has the choice not to. That is the one thing I am incapable of providing you directly. Do you see why choice, human agency, is so important? When you ask me to take it away from someone who is making poor choices, 
choices that also hurt others, it goes against the very heart of why you were created. While I don't want to control you, I do want to care for you. I explained that to David, and I asked him to let you know too. That's how Psalm 23 came about. His life was neither easy nor perfect, but I made it real for him. I want to make it real for you too. I know what is good for you, the paths of life that lead to flourishing and joy, what David called paths of righteousness. We live in a broken world, and parts of you are broken too. So some of those paths are going to hurt. They require surrendering to me. But those paths lead somewhere good. I wish I could answer all of your prayers with a resounding yes. I truly wish I could. But so many of them aren't on the paths that lead to good, and I want good for all people, especially you. I want the very best for you. And the very best for you is more of me. So my spirit is working with you to make of you the kind of person whom I can give more of myself to. As your heart aligns with mine more and more, you will find that more of your prayers are for the things that are on the paths of righteousness, the good paths, the paths of flourishing and joy. Those prayers I can answer. So spend time with me. Get to know me. I'll work on you as you do. Let's do this together. Let's work together for the good of you, for the good of others, and for the good of creation. What do you say? Practicing with. In this section, we engage in a practice that we do with God and hopefully with God together with those he loves. As mentioned on the intro episode, hopefully you get to invite others to experience our God-bathed life with you. It might look different for you, but one way you might do that is to get together with a couple of people each week for a meal. Over that meal, you get to know each other a little better and discuss what stood out to you in the episode, what questions you might have, and what your experience of the practice has been. I'd also recommend that you pray for each other as well. Let's look at this episode's practice. God is active in our lives, as much or as little as we'll allow him to be. Sometimes he works undercover for our good, though. This exercise is a twist on the count your blessings exercise and is meant to reveal areas where God may be working for your good that you may not, may not be on the forefront of your mind. Inanimate objects are not allowed. So your house, your car, your Keurig, not allowed. However, being thankful that your family can be together in one place, being thankful that you can travel from one place to another, and being thankful for the wonderful tastes that God has provided is allowed. Also allowed are things like skills that you have that you're good at. Mine might be listening well, enjoying people, and communicating well. Don't forget the animate objects like pets and people and God. Don't forget about God. He doesn't want to be left off the list. See if you can come up with 25 to 50 of those or more. Maybe keep a running list on your phone. Then have a conversation or three with God about your list. And don't forget to include others in the conversation. By the way, if you like the music that you've heard on this podcast, it is by poor Bishop Hooper. I really like them. 
You'll find a link to them in the show notes of this, ex- of this episode. See you next time when we talk about the fact that we can have a God-bathed life because we live in a God-bathed world.
after me every single day of my life I will live I will live I will live Surely your goodness and your faithful love will run after me every single day of my life and I will live, I will live, I will live in the house of the Lord. I will live, I will live, I will live in the house of the Lord.